The reading this evening is from John, chapter 12, verses 17 through to 36. Now on your pew Bibles, that's starting on page 1078 through to 1079. John 12, verse 17 through to 36. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour, of, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <clears throat> I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. Or the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. Now it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there had heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little longer, just a little, little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark doesn't know where he is going, but put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Amen.
Thank you, Howard. Let's, as usual, pray. Thank you, Father, that you so loved us that you sent Jesus to die for us. Please help us to understand this better, to respond to it, and to live our lives in the light of it. Amen. Amen. There's a lot in that passage, isn't there? Uh, certainly more than uh, one sermon uh, can deal with, but I'll have a good go. Um, it's quite dense, and what I want to do is just go through what happened, what Jesus said. And so I do strongly recommend you have a Bible in front of you. Uh, I went around earlier to make sure there were lots of Bibles in the uh, benches. Uh, it's on page 1078. Uh, in those uh, Bibles in the pews. And it's John chapter 12. The reading actually started at verse 17. Just by way of reminder, those of you who were here last week will remember that we looked at Jesus' brief visit to um, Bethany at the start of the last week of his life. And in particular, we looked at the response of Mary, the sister of uh, Martha and of Lazarus, and her commitment to Jesus. But of course, visiting Bethany was just a staging post for Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. It was only just outside Jerusalem, but his real objective was Jerusalem. And he then headed on into Jerusalem, where he entered, if you will recall, uh, riding on a donkey. And uh, the people greeted him. Lots of people uh, greeted him. It's the so-called triumphal entry. People yelled, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Uh, And there were a lot of people, it appears, who were cheering him. But not everyone was quite as pleased as everyone else. In particular, the religious leaders were very nervous about what this all meant, not least for them. You probably heard at the start of our reading. So the Pharisees said to one another, Look, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. That was, of course, an exaggeration. The whole world hadn't gone after him. But it was a pardonable exaggeration. And it was unintentionally prophetic. The Bible has a lot of unintentionally prophetic statements. And that was one from the Pharisees. And the hint of that comes in the thing which happened immediately afterwards. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast... They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Where it says Greeks, by the way, that term doesn't necessarily mean Greeks in the sense we uh, would use it. Uh, It's referring to non-Jews who spoke Greek, of whom there were a lot in that part of the world. They probably, in fact, went to speak to Philip because Philip came from Bethsaida, which is in the north of the country, and which was right next to the Decapolis, which was the Greek-speaking area. Actually, Philip has a Greek name, and it may well be that he was well-known in that community up there. Uh, But Philip didn't quite know what to do, it's clear, and he went to see his brother Andrew, uh, probably one of his close friends amongst the disciples. They were both from Bethsaida. Andrew also has a Greek name, though they were both Jews. And then together, they went to put this question to Jesus. Would he see these Gentiles? Now, the interesting thing is, we don't know how Jesus responded. We don't know whether he agreed to see them, We certainly don't know whether the meeting took place. 
John, the writer of this gospel, didn't see that as important enough to tell us what happened. What he focused on was the discourse of Jesus that was prompted by the Greeks' uh, request. And it's that that we're going to focus on this evening. Jesus began by talking about himself. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Those of you who are familiar with John's Gospel, or in particular have been following all our sermons from it in the last couple of years, will realize that Jesus frequently spoke about the hour, or his hour, meaning the climax of his ministry. But until this point, he'd always talked about it as being in the future. My hour has not yet come, he said to his mother. That was just before turning the water into wine. And he said similar things on a number of occasions. But now, now he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And remember where we are in the last week of his life, just before his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. But what did he mean by that? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm sure most of you are aware that Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, it was his most characteristic designation of himself. But if you think about it, it's a slightly odd designation, isn't it? What did Jesus mean by that? Well, of course, we know that Jesus took a lot of his understanding of himself from the Old Testament. Of course he did, his understanding of himself and his ministry, because that was what was prophesying about him. So the question really becomes, is there something in the Old Testament that helps us with this? And yes, there is. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel which helps us. I'll just read it. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is a vision of Daniel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's an extraordinary prophecy. Just think about it. There's this one like a son of man, presumably like a human being, and he is led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, God. Now what happens in the Old Testament and the New when people are led into the presence of God? They bow down and worship, don't they? They bow down and ascribe glory and power and sovereignty and majesty and dominion and all those things to God. But it doesn't happen, does it? The one to whom glory and honour are ascribed, the one of whom it is said his dominion is an everlasting dominion, the one who is worshipped is the Son of Man. You see, Jesus used the title, the Son of Man of himself, saying effectively, I'm that Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied about. And when these Greeks came to him, he said, yeah, the hour's come, hasn't it? They're Greeks. 
people of all languages, etc. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for that prophecy of Daniel to be fulfilled. The hour has come for me to be glorified. Now, had he stopped at that point, at least some in the crowd could have been forgiven for expecting some enormous display of earthly power. But Jesus didn't stop there. You see, ever since Peter had identified him as the Messiah, Jesus had been very careful to modify people's expectations of what the Messiah, the Saviour, was going to be like. And in particular, he told them that it involved suffering and death. And that's exactly what he did again here. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. He was saying to them, he was going to die. But yes, there was going to be a display of God's power. Yes, he was going to be glorified, but it was going to be in and through his suffering and death. It was going to be like a grain of seed dying. People, it appears to be failure, the end, but it isn't. In order, if a grain falls to the ground, what does it do? It multiplies. It produces new life. And Jesus was saying, that's my glory. That's what's going to happen to me. Now, we'll return to that because Jesus did. But let's for a moment see what he said next. Because he moved from him to us. Well, people generally of his day And us now, this is verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He was indicating to all those who were listening that they needed to be like him. They needed to give up their lives. You see, what he was saying there, and indeed says on many occasions, is... If we treat our life as the central thing in the universe, if we hang on to it... If we make it the main thing that we're concerned about, then we will be separated from God and the end result will actually be eternal death. But if, on the other hand, we, as he puts it here, hate our life, he doesn't mean literally hate it, it's a a Hebraism, but, but what it's basically saying is if we treat it as of no account by comparison with the importance of knowing God then the result will have a relationship with God. Then the end result will be eternal life. And then he expanded. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. I'm sure many of you recognize he said that kind of thing time and again. See, what he's saying to us is, You've got to give up making yourself the centre of your lives. You've got to give up being self-centred, put simply. Instead, you've actually metaphorically got to be where I am. That's what he was saying. We've got to make sure that we follow Jesus wherever that goes. And it may lead, as Jesus warned, to unpopularity. He was unpopular. Suffering. He suffered. But above all, we need to do Jesus' work. We need to be Jesus' mouthpiece. And the result of that? 
Well, at the end of verse 26, my father will honour the one who serves me. God will honour that. May sound bad. May sound as though you're giving up something, but he's already told us that the result's eternal life. Just in case that isn't good enough, it says the father will honour the one who serves him. Now again, we'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus swept on. He'd implicitly talked about his death And that clearly burdened him. Verse 27. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's unclear whether he actually prayed, Father, save me from this hour, or was just saying, that's what I feel like praying. But it doesn't really matter. A couple of days later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he certainly did pray something very similar. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The word word here translated troubled is a very strong one. He was in anguish about what was coming. He knew what was coming. He knew he was going to be crucified, and he was in anguish. I know that concerns some people. People think about it and they say, well, why? He, he, he trusted in, in God the Father. He, he knew what was going to happen. He knew all the prophecies. He was going to rise from the dead. So, so why? Uh, haven't many martyrs, haven't many other people gone to their deaths rejoicing? They didn't seem to be in anguish. Why was Jesus in anguish? Now, we can never get into, if I can say it without impiety, the psychology of Jesus. But there's a really important thing to remember here. The physical suffering of Jesus was only part of his suffering and not even the main part of his suffering. You see, as we've been singing, Jesus' death was far greater significance than just a physical death. Jesus' death was all about taking the punishment for wrongdoing, not his, he didn't have any, but ours. This, this is what Paul says about it. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And the Apostle Peter said exactly the same thing in slightly different words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was, as it were, being treated as if he committed all the sins that had ever been committed and being punished for them there and then. Uh, Paul also puts it in even stronger language. This is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We actually sang about that as well. I wonder whether you took the biblical illusion when, uh, you, uh, when you heard it. God was cursing Jesus on the cross. Now, can I explain all of that? Of course I can't. Can I imagine what it was like for Jesus? Of course I can't. But I hope as we think about that, we begin to realise that this wasn't an ordinary death. And the idea of Jesus being in anguish about it is unsurprising. But he kept going, didn't he? And he kept going for several reasons. In particular, Jesus' aim was always to serve 
God his Father. I've quoted his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I'm sure most of you will realise I've only quoted half of it. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in in this uh, verse, in this passage here, what did he say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He was utterly committed to the service of God the Father, wherever it led. There's a second thing. He did understand that it was necessary. He understood that it was in and through this that he was to be glorified. Uh, the, The words here are somewhat elliptical. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, save me. No, it was for the very reason of being saved that I came to this point of suffering. It's, it's a very elliptical saying. But, but actually what he's saying is, no, this is the whole purpose of my life. This is why I'm here. It, it's to go through this and indeed come out the other side. You see, he was going to be glorified and so was his father. And then a voice came from heaven. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it, God's name, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. That was the third time in Jesus' life that there had been a voice from heaven. First, at the time of his baptism. Second, his transfiguration. Third, here. But he said it wasn't for his benefit, it was for the crowds. Well, it has to be said they were a bit confused, to say the least, about what it was. What it was, of course, was a sign. It was an endorsement of him. And whilst they may not have understood then, I should imagine a little while later, after the crucifixion and resurrection, they began to think about this in a different context and recognise what it was. But Jesus moved on, or rather... He moved to expand what he'd said previously. Verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. That's all describing one thing, but mentioning three aspects of it. Let's take those bit by bit. Now's the time for judgment on this world. What did he mean by that? Oddly enough, people who've written about this passage seem to disagree strongly about it, even people I'd have expected to agree. But actually, the basics are pretty clear. We we said a few moments ago that Jesus was bearing the punishment of the world. He was bearing the punishment due for wrongdoing and sin. And in that sense, when Jesus was on the cross, the world was being judged in him. Jesus on the cross says, that's the consequence of evil. That's what happens by way of the punishment of evil. But there's something more as well. Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross, did he? He died and he rose again. And in rising again, he was vindicated God the Father was saying, he's in the right. And that was itself judgment on those who had rejected Jesus. It was the judgment of wrong and evil on unbelief. The world was being judged in that sense as well. 
So Jesus was saying, now, the time of my crucifixion and subsequent resurrection is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be, this world will be driven out. Prince of this world clearly refers to the devil, doesn't it? But to understand what Jesus is, is saying, we need to have an understanding of what the Bible says about our natural state apart from Jesus. Now, there is at least a sermon in this, but I'll try to be reasonably brief. You see, the Bible says that uh, there are two, and only two, dominions, or domains, as it calls them, in creation. There are only two situations in which we may find ourselves. The dominion of darkness, or the dominion of light, the latter frequently called the kingdom of God. And you see, the difference between them is this. The dominion of darkness is the place where God's authority is not acknowledged. The dominion of light is where it is acknowledged. And here's the key. Apart from Jesus, we're all in the former. The dominion of darkness. We may not know it, but we are. That doesn't mean that we and other people like, like us are, are never do anything good. No. We're created in the image of God. It's marred, but people are still capable of good. No. But we are not in the place where God's authority is acknowledged. It is not somewhere where people are acknowledging God is king. In fact, worse, the Bible says something even stronger than that. It says that though we probably don't know it, we've placed ourselves under the authority of the spiritual being who was the first to rebel against God, the devil. Hence, it refers to the prince of this world. And apart from Jesus, there's no solution to that problem. Because our wrongdoing has separated us from God. There is no other thing God can do than to condemn that wrongdoing. We are separated and condemned to the dominion of darkness, as the Bible calls it, and the ultimate result of that is physical and spiritual death. But, Jesus was saying, I'm going to die. And we heard a moment ago that that involves Jesus taking the punishment for all sin. I quoted several passages from the New Testament letters, but I only half quoted them all. The second half of the quotes explain the consequence. This is back to 2 Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So that we might move from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light, into God's kingdom. Uh, Paul sums it up very well in, one, in Colossians chapter 1. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that leads on to the third aspect of what Jesus was saying here. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 
Uh, in Greek, as in English, the word lifted up can be used literally or metaphorically. And John makes it clear that there was at least a, uh, a literal physical aspect to this. What Jesus was saying is, when I'm lifted up on a cross, physically, I will draw people to myself. But the word lifted up can also mean exalted. And there is clearly there an element of that, not least because it seems to be an allusion to Isaiah's famous prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus in Isaiah 52 and 53. This is the start of that prophecy. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Jesus was seeing what was happening to him as a fulfillment of that prophecy. And he was saying, as I am exalted, as I'm on the cross, lifted up physically, but also that itself is my exaltation, so people will be drawn to me, people of all nations. Don't forget the context of all of this. The thing that triggered all of what Jesus said was these Greeks coming to him. So he was sort of giving an answer, wasn't he, after all? He was saying, yeah, my ministry on earth has primarily been to the Jews. But the time has come when I'm dying, not just for the Jews, but for all people. So, yes, you Greeks, you can be part of my people, just as much as Jews can be part of my people. But there's a but. When he says, I will draw all men to myself, he doesn't mean all in the sense of each and every person. If he meant that, he would contradict himself a few moments later and would contradict a lot else that he was saying. No, what he's talking about is people of all kinds. Back to the Greeks. Greeks and Jews, us, people far off, young, old, men, women, all races, doesn't matter. He will draw all people to himself because the offer of moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is open to all. But how did the crowd react? Well, not very well, is the honest truth. The crowd spoke up, verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, the people of Jerusalem had clearly understood he was claiming to be the Messiah, the Saviour. They understood that. And they also understood that his calling himself the Son of Man was related to that. And they were right. But their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do, their understanding of the Son of Man was incomplete. You see, they'd taken all those passages in the Old Testament which prophesied God saving, sending a mighty saviour who would bring salvation to his people, who would be with his people and who would rule forever. They read all of those. They hadn't really focused on passages like those passages in Isaiah which prophesied the suffering of this person. And as a result, uh, they were puzzled. You see, on numerous occasions in the Old Testament, it does say, the kingdom of the Messiah will last forever. Did you notice in the bit from Daniel that I read, it said uh, the Son of Man's dominion will be an eternal dominion. And they were saying, well, if you're saying you're going to die, you can't possibly be 
the Messiah because he's going to live forever. And as for this son of man business, what kind of son of man do you think you are? Certainly not a Daniel 7.13 type of son of man, you're not. Of course, they got it wrong. But somewhat troublingly, Jesus didn't argue with them. Instead, what he did is he issued a warning and a challenge. Look at verse 35. You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. To be clear, he's not saying, walk while you've got the light because everyone's going to end up in darkness. Actually, what it literally says is, walk while you have the light, light, lest darkness overtake you. Walk while you have the light in order to make sure darkness doesn't overtake you. He was making it clear to them, he was only going to be with them a few more days. And he was saying, take heed of what I'm saying, because I'm telling you how you can move from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom. How you can move from being condemned into having a relationship with God and eternal life. But be careful, because darkness is coming, and if you don't take care to take heed of my words, it will come, and you then won't be able to find your way. You will stay in the kingdom of darkness. The time will come when you can't escape. And then in one of those statements in the Bible that really, I don't know about you, hits you between the eyes, it says, when he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus was effectively saying, I'm done. I've said all there is to say I'm not standing and arguing with you. Over to you. You see, they'd heard his teaching. Specifically, they'd heard his teaching about himself. They'd heard his teaching about the significance of the cross, the significance of what was about to happen to him. They'd witnessed the signs of who he was, including, most recently, the voice from heaven. They had heard him describe what it was necessary for them to do, including, most recently, his statements about serving and following him. What more was there to say? They'd heard it all. All that remained was for them to decide whether to accept Jesus or reject him. To accept Jesus, they needed to turn away, to repent, and give up on rejecting the authority of God, and turn and follow Jesus, accept God's authority. And the consequence of that? The consequence of that was moving from the domain of darkness, the dominion of darkness, into God's kingdom, having a relationship with God, and ultimately, as he says earlier, having eternal life. And rejecting him? Well, to reject him, they needed to do absolutely nothing. 
And the consequence of that? The consequence of that was that they would remain in the kingdom of darkness. They would not have a relationship with God. And ultimately, they would lose their lives physically and spiritually. It was their choice. And of course, I wouldn't be standing here talking about this if that was all there was to it. What Jesus was saying here doesn't just apply to them. This event he was talking about, this death, was of eternal significance. The same choice is the choice you have and I have. Same choice our family members have, our friends have, our colleagues, our acquaintances. And we need both to make sure that we're answering that challenge of Jesus in the right way and presenting that challenge to all these other people in whose presence we come from time to time. We need to ask, are we accepting Jesus as who he said he was? Accepting what he's offering in moving us from darkness to light or rejecting it? Because it has eternal significance. Amen.